Welcome to another episode in the Search for Racial Equity series, a global forum offering an in-depth study and dialogue of racial equity and justice. We amplify the most authentic and powerful voices of our time in the racial justice movement while using our global platform to create safe spaces for the most important and timely discussions. As the world continues to fight for racial justice, many of us wonder the same thing. How can we make a real, lasting difference? Meaningful change often begins with meaningful conversation. To contribute to that dialogue and our commitment to racial equity and inclusion, Google has launched a weekly series on our Talks at Google YouTube channel and here in podcast form that amplifies some of the most authentic and influential voices of our time and this global movement. The Search for Racial Equity series hosts authentic, open discussions that reckon with the structural and systemic racism Black people have experienced over generations. To find the video of this talk and all others from the series, please visit g.co slash talks at Google slash racial equity. In this episode, Ola, Google's Latinx employee resource group, hosts a conversation about racism and colorism, identity, and justice in Latin America with four Afro-Latinx activists and scholars from Peru, the Dominican Republic, Honduras, and the United States. This conversation examines the historical context of race in Latin America, existing systemic inequalities, and the current movements of activism in the region advocating for racial equality. Moderated by Googler Yulisa Ramirez, here is Afro-Descendants, Recognition, Justice, and Development in the Americas. We have an important moment right now to advance dialogue and action surrounding racial equity around the world. That starts within each of us as individuals, and it starts at places like Google. Google's values are based on three respects. First, we respect all of our users because a problem is never solved if it's only solved for some. Second, we respect the opportunity. Working at Google comes with the responsibility to do the right thing and to accomplish things that matter. And third, we respect each other. We co-create a culture where everyone belongs. These values are the foundation for our concrete commitments to racial equity, building sustainable equity within Google, building products that, for example, help Black users, investing in economic opportunities for Black business owners and entrepreneurs, closing gaps in STEM education, supporting racial justice organizations, and more. This series is a forum to empower all of us to do even more. We'll explore topics and issues surrounding racial equity in its many forms with some of the world's leading voices in this space. Our goal is to amplify those voices and come together as a global community to make real change. Thank you for joining us as we search for racial equity. Hello, everyone. My name is Julissa Ramirez. I am a technical program manager here at Google and a director for OLA, Google's Latinx Employee Resource Group. Our panelists today are scholars and activists from various parts of the Americas, including Peru in the South, Honduras Central, Dominican Republic in the Caribbean, and the United States in the North. Our conversation will be framed around the topics of recognition, justice, and development in alignment with the United Nations Decade for People of African Descent. Thank you so much for joining us today. Okay, let's start with some introductions. Dr. Luis, would you like to go first? Hello, everyone. My name is Luis Paredes. I am a director of institutional diversity at Bridgewater State University. 
I also hold a joint appointment as visiting associate professor in the School of Social Work. Uh, prior to that, my training is in cultural anthropology. I study the ways marginalized and oppressed people use their bodies to convey the past, to convey those invisible histories that are never part of, of any textbook or even of the national memories. Uh, I study the way that dance, dance and body movement create uh, agency for people that have not been part of the, of the nation state. Um, other than that, my, my research focuses on the study of blackness within the South American context, primarily focusing on Peru. Thank you. Dr. Miguelina. Hi everyone, my name is Dr. Miguelina Rodriguez and along with my identical twin sister, Dr. Griselda Rodriguez-Salomon, we are the Brujas of Brooklyn. Um, we are both college professors within the City University of New York. And uh, my research was looking at gentrification, a specific form of neighborhood change in Washington Heights, the largest Dominican community in the United States. So my work has a very US-based context. And my work focused on the role in which racial identity, specifically with regards to black Dominican women, working class women in Dominican Republic, shape their everyday lives. So I did, and I have done extensive research on anti-black racism among Dominicans in Dominican Republic in particular, and now it's evolved to Dominicans in the diaspora, specifically the US. Our work as Brujas of Brooklyn is rooted, it's a wellness platform where we focus on creating workshops um, rooted in yoga, where each um, respective yoga instructors focus specifically on addressing womb-related imbalances among women of color because we address this from a systemic perspective, knowing that women, people with wombs, carry a lot of intergenerational trauma in our wombs. So it's a nice balance between our academic work and our spiritual work as brujas. Thank you so much. Julia, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, everybody. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here talking about colorism within the Latino community in the Americas. I'm the managing director of SUDEC Inc. SUDEC stands for Sustainable Development and Climate Change, and it's a consultant firm that focuses on promoting sustainable development and facilitate the implementation of projects in vulnerable communities. I was born in Honduras, where I became an attorney at an early stage in my life. I'm also a proud member of the Garifuna community, who are runaway captured people that joined the Arawaks Indians in the Caribbean, the Arawaks and Caribbean Indians, and were brought by the British in 1797 to Central America. The largest Garifuna community is in the US, particularly in the Bronx. I'm also a member of the Afro-Latino community, phenotypically African-American. Uh, we are almost the intersection, I would say, between the approximately 15% uh, of the US population, which are Hispanic, and 13% uh, uh, of the African American community that live in the in the United States. Uh, I am here to hear, to listen and exchange point of view. And thank you once again. Thank you so much everyone for sharing um, and introducing yourself. Julio, you mentioned that you identify as Afro-Latino and I'd like to ask you all, what does it mean for you to be Afro-Latino? Starting with you, Julio. 
Thank you, uh, Julissa. Uh, is a really good question. Uh, I would like to start by saying that the term Afro-Latino has been widely used in the United States predominantly. In Latin America, we don't use that terminology. And uh, the term started to be used by members, by the uh, international organizations, organizations like the World Bank, the Inter-American Development Bank, the Congressional Research Services started to use the, the, the term Afro-Latino to refer to all those people that are African descent that come from Latin America and the, and the Caribbean. And in the U.S., you know, I am, as a proud member of the Garifuna community, I also embrace the Afro-Latino identity. There is research that shows that out of this 15% of the U.S. population, which are Hispanic or Latinos, at least one third of them have a African blood. If we follow the one drop rule that is being widely used in the United States. So as a member of the Garifuna community, as an African descent, as a, as a member of the Hispanic community, I use the terminology, the term Afro-Latino to uh, unify one single vision with all those people that come from the approximately 200,000 or 150 million people that lives in Latin America and the Caribbean. Thank you. Thank you so much, Julio. Dr. Luis, would you like to answer that question? Sure. When I think of Afro-Latinos, I think more of the collective effort to create unison, to create that, a, a community of, of multiple backgrounds, multiple perspectives. But at the same time, I am careful not to um, create a static indefinition about the experiences of Blackness, because we also have to recognize that there's different ways of existing as a Black person, depending where you're located in the Americas. So for me, Afro-Latinos is more of a U.S.-based movement that has um, served as a, as a way to explore the differences uh, within the Blackness that exists already in the United States. But at the same time, we have to think of the Afro-Descendientes, which are the people uh, that continue to resist uh, oppression and racism in different localities uh, of the Americas. So for me, is also um, the possibility to celebrate resistance through activism and through performance. Uh, Afro-Latinidad offers us the uh, space to really cultivate new knowledge, uh, create new networks for new possibilities, but also study more in depth the particularities that we share as Afro-descendants, as Afro-Latinos. There's more similarities than differences, but we also have to acknowledge the individuality, the individuality of these communities um, and how uh, slavery and then racist policies have been continuing to affect uh, these populations over the last couple of decades. Um, that is what Afro-Latinos means for me in a nutshell. So thank you. Dr. Miguelina? So for me, being Afro-Latina, um, it's, it's multifaceted, as we said. It's, uh, for me, it's almost like an identity of resistance. Being Dominican women where blackness has been denied, it's been shunned, the dictator Trujillo tried to like, you know, kill off blackness in the Dominican Republic. Identifying as an Afro-Latina is an act of resistance. Um, 
I also am really clear that I'm Afro-Latina, I'm also Black. Because for me, Afro-Latinidad is not a way for me to embrace the diversity that is an island like the Dominican Republic, but then still continue to shun Blackness. Because in the U.S. context, people say Black and they think African-American. And as people of Latin American descent in the U.S., unfortunately, sometimes our communities have othered African-Americans. So in order to kind of shy away, people may say I'm Afro-Latina, but they won't say they're Black. And Griselda mm -hmm. and I are very clear that we are both. And it's a way to embrace the fact that fortunately and unfortunately Blackness in the Western Hemisphere started in what's today the Dominican Republic and Haiti being a slave port for close to 200 years before the United States became involved deeply in the transatlantic slave trade. And unfortunately, it was an, atroc an atrocious event, a genocide, uh, but fortunately it created this beautiful culture that we now have and that we're personally embracing as Black Dominican women. Dr. Griselda? Yeah, so thank you everybody for your contributions. Um, in, for me, um, Afro-Latinidad, it is a form of resistance um, because of the historical anti-Blackness that has been seeped into the entire Latin American region, the entire Western Hemisphere, if we really look at the way white supremacy works. So I think to be of Latin American descent and embrace Blackness in a very profound, embodied way itself is an act of resistance. Mm -hmm. And this is not new. Like People of Latin American descent in the U.S. have been claiming their Blackness in a very profound way for decades, right? For decades. If you look at Schomburg, Arturo Schomburg, if you look at Carlos Cooks, you know, these are people, um, various people of the Young Lords movement of the civil rights era in the 60s and 70s, especially in New York City and Chicago. So as an as a Afro-Latina, I claim this identity as a form of reclaiming parts of myself that have been denied. So it's a remembering, it's a reclamation. And I appreciate both Julio and Luis differentiating the reality that um, Afro-Latinidad is not as explicitly embodied and um, organized around across Latin America as it is in the U.S., but it makes sense because of how bifurcated the U.S. racial system is, either you're black or you're white. Obviously, there's brown, there's Latinx, there's South Asians, there's uh, mixed-race folks, but I think that Latinx people in a U.S. context have been really pushed to look at our blackness in a way that may not necessarily be the case in Latin America, but there are people historically that have been fighting to claim their blackness across Latin America since the colonial domination began in 1492. It's a it's an identity that I wear proudly. And um, it's also one that I think we wanna be clear on, the Brujas of Brooklyn are also clear on. Luis, excuse me, Julio, you touched on it earlier, is that um, Afro-Latinidad is contextual. Luis, you mentioned it, where you can be considered mixed race in one context, but black in the other. Um, but we also know that in the U.S., Afro-Latinidad has a different, um, people have a different experience based on how they embody blackness. People of a darker hue have a different experience with blackness than, let's say, people of a lighter hue like my sister and I. But it doesn't negate the reality that we have our own unique black experience that deserves the space and the, the attention to address some of the um, injustices that we've experienced. I love this. So I, myself, I was born in Dominican Republic and I also identify as Afro-Latina from as far as um, college days. 
Um, but you know, that brings, you bring a great point, which is who gets to claim blackness. Sometimes I myself feel inadequate in certain rooms and in certain conversations, because I want to acknowledge my privilege as a lighter skinned black person. So how do you guys tell me a little bit more about who gets to claim this and how do we define this? That's a hard question. Um, I think that it's a great question, especially now that this conversation on Afro-Latinidad, it seems to have taken a bit more center stage. Um, and I think that it's important to acknowledge that in the United States, the Black experience is overwhelmingly an African-American one. And there's no mm -hmm. denying that as people of Latinx descent, we have a lot to be thankful for of our African-American family because the civil rights era paved the way for us where you know, when, when Lyndon B. Johnson and, and Martin Luther King Jr. signed the Civil Rights Act in 64, that created the Hart Seller Act, the Family Reunification Act, which brought people from all across Latin America, with the exception of Puerto Rico and Mexico, in large numbers to the United States. And that would not have happened without the blood, sweat, and tears of our African-American family during the Civil Rights era. And I think because of that, this conversation about Blackness within that Latinx community, it can get really complex. It's a slippery slope because we want to acknowledge the struggles of our African-American family, but not take away from the reality that we are still Black, right? We have to start kind of like opening up our, like expanding our horizons and looking at Blackness within a global context. Because the thing is with Afro-Latinas, Afro-Latino folks, like we're here and we're getting louder and I don't want to see this like divide where it's like, well, you're not black because you're not African-American or you're not black because you're too light skin. If we came together, it would be significantly more powerful than dividing us. Again, as my sister said a few minutes ago, it is still important, right, in a state of balance to acknowledge that our darker skin sisters and brothers and family members from across nationalities have a significantly different experience right just phenotypically showing up and you know for our brother julio on the panel he walks into a room people before you speak people will not assume you're from honduras right and mm -hmm. and your treatment will be different fortunately and unfortunately you start to speak spanish and the conversation starts to shift a little bit sometimes right my sister and i walk into a space a lot of times we don't have that it's like people are like oh if we're ambiguously raised we're like either from east africa or north parts of north africa or India. <laughs> the default is not like black African-American. So I think that this conversation is, is interesting. It's important. And who gets to claim blackness? It needs to, that conversation needs to happen on a global stage and it needs to have a lot of love laced in it because what mm -hmm. oppression does then, Gri and I joke, it's tongue in cheek, like it becomes the oppression Olympics. Like you're not as black as me because you're not as dark. You're not as black as me because your hair doesn't curl the way mine curls. You're not as black as me because you're not stopped every time by the police. And those are real lived experiences that we need to acknowledge and bring central to the conversation. But we also need to expand it again. And at the end, who gets to claim blackness? It's like, with the exception of, honestly, like white people don't have a right to tell us who's black or not. I think people of Latinx descent can also claim their blackness as long as they're acknowledging, again, the lived experiences of people across different hues. Because look at our brother Luis. Luis may have a very different experience as a like lighter skinned man in the U.S., but in Peru, you are probably one of the darker ones because Peru has this, this relatively mixed population. So it, it really does vary.
again in tongue in cheek we, we 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 play around like who holds the blackometer <laughs> this is a question that we have been grappling with for for almost two decades one thing that we have to acknowledge for ourselves i don't know about the other panelists is that we came into our blackness as yes. we were coming of age like we didn't grow right. up in an, a black affirming household we didn't grow, we grew up in an african-american neighborhood and that right. fed into our identities now as black women we grew up in an anti-black home. Don't bring my, don't bring a dark man to my house. Don't don't mix with those morenos, those black people out in the street. You know, oh, if, if we wore something, or you want to be black like those people. And unfortunately, we've had to do a lot of healing around that. So we acknowledge that, but we've had to face the black omito a lot in college, in our respective workplaces, sometimes in our own dating experiences. And mm -hmm. I think that in our heart. Black is a, pheno, a phenotypical identity, but it's also a consciousness, right? Yes. It's an understanding that blackness is global, but the root of our blackness lies on the motherland, which is Africa. And that unless you acknowledge the presence of the motherland Africa as a source of our existence, then for me, that's not a blackness that to me is valid. I'm keeping it real. But we can get deeper, as Miguelina has said, that, you know, people... Um, isolate blackness to phenotypically dark-skinned people, and that's understood in a white supremacist country like the U.S. and the world. Um, but if you look across the diaspora, especially on the continent of Africa, the continent of Africa is not phenotypically homogenous. You know, right. there's people like me that are African, and there's people, you know, you know, dark, very, very dark that are also African. So I love this conversation because it's very healing because. Um, it has really pushed me and my sister and so many other lighter skinned black women, Julissa, I'm going to acknowledge you and <laughs> that you kind of like even struggled to say that because honestly, I'm also like, okay, yes, I am lighter skinned compared to other people, but when, then compared to some of my family members, right? So it's, right. it's very contextual. So I'm, I'm happy we're having this dialogue. Thank you so much for that wonderful insight. Um, Dr. Luis, would you like to contribute? Sure. Uh, this is fantastic. I am so happy that this conversation is happening because we can see how it's turning to become multi-layer. So I'll, I'll, I'll try to give a description about what's going on, right? So Paul Gilroyd introduces us to the Black Atlantic, right? And how uh, Black populations around the globe share particularities. And one of them is performance and the other is slavery, right? So we have those two platforms that Black people share around the globe. In the context of, of Peru, we have this thing called silent racism, where people are uh, oppressed and or marginalized based on appearance, right? The idea that we are a mixed country, that Peru is a mestizo country, um, doesn't have space for anybody to be racist, right? Because of that same idea that everyone is, is, is mixed. Uh, but then I also grew up with these terminologies or these uh, expectations from my family, such as Mejorar la raza, right? Mm -hmm. I would have to marry someone lighter to better the race. Um, and that's really sad to me because this is really internal colonialism, mm -hmm. right? This is kind of uh, my own people hating who they are to some extent because of the colonial uh, social hierarchies that were uh, left over, right? Um, as, as, as part of the colonial project. And then um, let me focus a little bit on my own research because this question is asked all the time. Who gets to perform blackness, right? In the context of, of performativity, um, there are a lot of stereotypes that also circulate around the black body, right? Especially those that are um, innate to rhythm, 
right, innate to dancing, these, these stereotypes that in a way contributed to, uh, uh, to validating the presence of black people, but at the same time, it created a very reductive, almost folkloric uh, uh, um, uh, identity for, for black people in the case of Peru and in other parts of, uh, of Latin America. But when it comes to performance, um, uh, to, 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 well, one is that you have to get my book. I, my book is coming out in Peru Negro, Bailando Muchas Memorias, is being sponsored by the Ministry of Culture of Peru and the University of Minnesota. But in that book, I really interrogate the way that performance operates around bodies. And what is interesting to me is that when this dance company, Peru Negro, was established in 1969, all of their membership was exclusively black. The blacker, the better, because for them it meant that they were validating their Africanness through the color of the skin, right? Not, not blackness, but their Africanness, right? Validating that they were Afro descendants. But over time, because of mixing, of social mixing, um, blackness has been watered down, if you will, uh, in Peru. So now a lot of the dancers, a lot of the musicians are not necessarily black phenotypically looking, right there and they're more looking like me for example right so so who gets to perform blackness and 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 that's a question that i don't think it's ever going to be answered because as we continue to to unpack the different experiences of blackness and how people survive and how people resist there's different dialogues that have to be taken into consideration um, in order for us to continue to create this collective effort towards uh, a more unified uh, black aesthetic, black black sentiment. Um, so I wanted to mention that just, just to uh, acknowledge that there's different ways of understanding or even uh, resisting who you are, depending on where you're located. Mm, thank you so much. With regard to the question, who gets to claim blackness? I think that that this is a very, very uh, important question. Uh, it can get very complex, very difficult, depending on the setting where you are addressing it. But anyone who is an African descendant uh, from anywhere in the world get to claim blackness. Anyone who is a descendant of the approximately 15 million blacks that were brought to the Americas during the slave trade, get to claim blackness. And when I talk about these 15 million blacks that were brought from Africa, I'm talking about the approximately 500,000 Afri African, uh, Africans that were brought to the, the United States in the approximately 13 million blacks that were brought to Latin America and the Caribbean. Most of them, as you earlier mentioned, came through the ports of the Dominican Republic, uh, Cuba, uh, Haiti, and uh, Brazil. Many of, and, and without, uh, have, without undermining or not mentioning the relevance that has Colombia, because Colombia is the country where the largest black, Hispanic population in the world. And, you know, this is a, what has made this a very difficult conversation is the fact that in most of the educational curriculums that we have throughout the whole hemisphere, 
blackness has not been taught in most of the schools in a way that made us pr pr proud of being of being black. Now, uh, I want to thank the entire Google team for bringing this to uh, our attention. And I think that things are going to start changing because of that. I see that another topic that uh, raised that some of you raised were uh, about policies and con historical context. All of you shared a little bit. And I want to ask you, um, how do you think the government um, and government policies and tools in the Americas have been used to erase and oppress Afro-populations? For example, we know that Mexico was one of the countries that just recently started including their Afro-Mexican population in the census. Um, Julio, would you like to answer that question? Thank you, Julissa. It's, a, it's, a, it's also a very important question. I think that it's important also to acknowledge that there has been two completely opposite policies in the Americas. On one hand, in the United States, we have been having the one-drop uh, rule that has been uh, of an official policy of the country for so many uh, decades, if not centuries. On the other hand, in Latin America, you had a racial democracy type of policy. With the first one, the one drop rule, if you have a drop of black, you are considered black, no matter how many generations back you can go. Uh, in, 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 in Latin America, with the racial democracy uh, policy, most governments decided to not incorporate the black identity or the black question or the black agenda as part of their national identity. And, you know, if you go to the census form of most of the Latin American countries, the few that has made progress with regard to that has been uh, because of the pressure that some multilateral corporations have put in them. Uh, I would say that during the, it was during the early 90s where most of these questions and most of these countries started to ask the black question. And, uh, and it was because in many of the transactions, in many of the loans that multilateral development institutions were giving to those, to those countries, there was a conditionality required them to allocate resources in the poorest communities, and the poorest communities happened to be black. One of the biggest issues that we are currently facing is the lack of data in most of these uh, countries in Latin America and the Caribbean, precisely because of this racial democracy policy. It's until the last 20 or probably 15 years uh, that most of these countries have started to collect data. But up until today with COVID, we are not able to see countries classifying uh, the information by race and ethnicity. Allocations, uh, uh, resources are being allocated in most of these countries. And that's why many of these programs fail, you know, because most of these governments don't necessarily have targeted programs that addresses the identity and cultural elements that is embedded within the, within the black community. At the corporate level, at the government level, over the last, during the 90s, there was a movement toward including the black identity in many of these countries. If you look at the agenda of most of most multilateral development institutions, just to mention one, the World Bank, 
you will see that many of them started to create offices to deal with the black agenda. The, uh, they created offices to, to deal with issues that have to deal with indigenous people. They created offices to deal with women issues, John, and the list goes on and on and on. During the early 2000s, most of these organizations started to shift that dynamic and started to create what they call the diversity office. And it was also an effort to water down all the progress that has been made with regard to the uh, addressing the issue of the black identity in, in the Americas. Hopefully, uh, because of the uh, Black Lives Matter movement that is taking place, we're gonna be able to get back to it. But uh, I think that we still have a long way to go. Thank you. Dr. Miguelina, I know that you do some policy work. Wondering what your answer to this question would be. Uh, yeah, I focus mainly on housing policy in the United States, specifically after World War II with suburbanization. And the Latinx community, it, we, we're very nuanced and we have a very complicated history within policy because we are this racialized ethnic group where on media, in, in education, we're presented as white and sometimes indigenous. Very rarely are we presented as black. But then you look at the education system in this country, it's still very heavily based on that, this racial binary, this black and white dichotomous nation. And then the people of Latinx descent were honestly not educated enough to understand the role that we play or where we fit in. Like um, I teach in an urban sociology course and the very first day I put two words on the board. I, I teach in a very, in a heavy Latinx uh, community college in Queens. I put the, the word Latinx and Hispanic, and my students are like, it's the same thing. I thought it was the same thing. I didn't know there was a distinction. There's minor distinctions that need to be highlight highlighted, but that's besides the point. The education system in this country doesn't teach us about racial categories when that's central to the census. The census that provides resources and provides funding to your community, a lot of Latinx people default to white or they default to other. Right. And there's rumors I have to get um, I have to get references on this. But the rumor is that if you check other in the census in the United States, you're defaulted to white in the racial category. So this is complex for someone like Griselda and I that identify as black. I check black. But what about the millions of others in this country that do not identify as black, but they, they don't identify as white? And then you have a separate ethnic category for Latinx and then they break it down into nationality. And it's always like respectfully, like Puerto Rican, Mexican, and then other, right? The other nationalities are not represented. So in terms of policy, I think that education policy needs to shift, right? Where we need to learn a, a, a significant information on what we are, the fact that Latinx people within the US context, right? Cause this is also, I have a US based context of the Latinx community. In, in Peru and in Honduras, in the Dominican Republic, people will look at you like, what are you talking about? But in the United States, the Latinx community, we are an ethnicity, right? And then we can fall under one of the main racial categories in the United States, and then your nationality is the nation you hail from. And we have sat on panels with adults and we have broken that down and they're like, whoa, no one ever broke it down to me in that way. So we live in a country that is extremely racist, that has extreme issues around racism, but then they don't teach us this very basic information. And I could sit here and say, yes, we are all human and, and th these are boxes and I don't wanna put people in boxes. But when I go outside into the world, I am a Latina woman of color. Mm 
And my job prospects differ from a white man and my education prospects. And as a PhD, I will get paid less than a white man in the same field. So it matters in that when you put it like that to people, people are like, okay, so I'll pay attention now. Mm -hmm. So I think that it, for me, it starts with education policy. And then the housing policy, it all meshes together because you can't really talk about housing policy if people are kind of sweeping us on into like this racial category which we're not so then when a, a, a bill passes for black people right and it's not specific who is it for like do am i included as a dominican woman that identifies as black or is it relegated only to african-americans right uh, that's interesting that you mentioned that because i feel like the the reason why i started learning about my personal blackness uh, was because of an application. I didn't. I didn't know. I didn't know when I saw white. I'm like, I know I'm not white. And then I see black. I question that. I'm like, I don't. No one taught me if I was black. So when I saw Pacific Islander, I'm like, maybe I'm a Pacific Islander because the <laughs> Dominican Republic is an island, <laughs> you know. And this is going back to like early high school. So I do think that we need that kind of education in um, our school system. Dr. Luis, do you wanna weigh in on that? Sure, just, uh, just to echo what Miguelina said about this ethnicity, right? Um, in the same context, Peruvianness has been uh, created as this ethnicity, if you will. In 1940, 1940 was the last year that the Peruvian government asked for race in the census. So in a way, it created this sense of community, of collectiveness, that everyone is the same, that everyone has the same opportunity, right? The integration of the nation, et cetera. Uh, let's fast forward to 2017. It was the first time since 1940 where the government restarted using some problematic descriptors like cobrizo, which would translate mm -hmm. to copper color, which would be kind of like an indigenous, an indigenous person, uh, mixed with a uh, with another uh, 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 Indian or Native person and some splash of uh, um, Spanish in it, um, and this was problematic in that one, the government wanted to uh, to acknowledge that there's multiple populations groups living within the country, but at the same time, it was taking us to this colonial uh, way of um, boxing people into categories. Um, I think that uh, we have to pay attention to the recent movements in countries like Colombia, for example. Colombia has had uh, extraordinary work done in, uh, in policy change in their constitution because actually uh, Afro-Colombians are mentioned now in the constitution, in the Colombian constitution, which is not the case for other uh, um, uh, countries. In the case of Peru, for example, it's also... It was an exclusive thing that uh, President Alan Garcia did in 2009, which was to publicly apologize to the Afro-descendant populations of the country for years of oppression and racism and invisibility from, from, from any um, platform. So I think that the census plays a good role, right, in that it allows people to be recognized, that their presence is recognized, or we can become a country like Brazil where remnants of this racial democracy allows for people to write in their own descriptors, right? If you feel that you have caramel skin color, you're gonna write caramel skin color in the census, right? So, so, so then again, we have to, uh, um, to acknowledge then, right? That blackness operates in different ways, depending on, 
and what the ideal nation state is for many of these governments, right? Because we also have to remember that most Latin American nations were obsessed with the creation of the ideal nation, with the ideal offsprings, right? And usually this was Spanish or European with some type of combination of indigenous mestizo person in the new world, right? And I'm being sarcastic about the new world. It, and, and there was nothing new about it. Uh, it was already populated. Uh, so, 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 so I think that, that we just need to acknowledge the different political processes that are happening in these countries, but also acknowledge that blackness is a more recent, I would say that the movement for black, uh, for black lives, if you will, in the context of Latin America um, is, is at its boom right now compared to the Afro-Latino uh, movement that's happening in the U.S. for the last five, 10 years. Uh, but I think that finally these voices are communicating because there was a very distinct black movement in, in south of the border compared to what was happening in the, um, in the States. So I think that finally we are uh, meeting, um, meeting platforms and hopefully we can continue the collaboration. I just wanted to add that in, in this conversation about policy, it gets really complex because you have people in terms of immigration, immig immigrant, immigrants from the Latinx uh, countries where there are certain policies about identity. And Luis, you touched on this. One of the certain politics and policies on identity in your in, in native country like the Dominican Republic that are very different and sometimes like mm -hmm. they're almost a polar opposite in the United States, like this conversation on nationalism. And Luis, mm -hmm. you touched on it where like in the Dominican Republic, heavily nationalist, there's nothing better than the Dominican Republic and it's not limited to the Dominican Republic, right? right. So many mm -hmm. nations do it. And then we arrive here, another nationalist nation, but immigrants don't see themselves reflected in the U.S. flag or sometimes in U.S. ideals. And again, mm -hmm. I go back to education. There's no education to remedy that. Like when I teach my, my college students and I ask them, so what do you identify as? They're like, yo soy ecuatoriana, yo soy mexicana. And I'm like, okay, and what else? And they don't even know that something else exists because they're framing it within the context of Mexico and Ecuador, yes. not understanding that that doesn't, it, in certain cases, it doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. It really doesn't matter. Like what matters is like, fortunately and unfortunately, your race and and or your ethnicity. Right. right. That's, That's great. It's a great insight. Uh, yeah, so moving on to the justice part of our conversation, um, and Louise, I think you mentioned this a little bit. Um, I really want to ask uh, you specifically, Dr. Griselda, how do you think the Black Lives Matter movement has impacting uh, Latin American region? Hmm, that's a, a good question that um, I will be frank and say that I cannot really touch on specifically how the Black Lives Matter movement has affected countries in Latin America in the present um, because I've been focused specifically in trying to understand BLM in the context of Latinx people in the U.S., um, I'm sure that technology, the little bit that I can see through social media and news media outlets, is that technology has enhanced communication, like Luis mentioned, bridging a lot of the gaps so that we can become a more globalized Black Lives Matter movement. I can't speak on Latinos, Latinx people in the U.S. I think it has helped more Afro-Latinos, our voices be amplified. To, I think that a conversation like this would not have happened 
honestly speaking, mm -hmm. in a corporate media setting like Google, had it not been because of the uprisings and people finally being like, oh, I think there's something going on. Right. I think there's something called racism still going on. And then with that awareness, I think Latinx people then were really pushed and challenged to really um, identify themselves within this movement. And more and more people, I'm seeing more resistance. I'm seeing more people cling on to these anti-Black ideologies that we've brought from our respective home countries and that have been fermented and, 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 and solidified in the U.S., one of the most racist nations in the world, right? Um, but I think that Latinx people in the U.S. are really being pushed to acknowledge our internalized racism and then really position ourselves as either allies or central to the Black Lives Matter movement. So, for example, when I see headlines that are like Latinx people for Black Lives Matter is like it kind of seems oxymoronic. But but like Miguel mentioned, we Latinos are a multiracial ethnic group. I understand that there are white Latinos that do not identify as black, are not identified as black, and do not have a lived experience of a black person, no matter the shade of brown that we are. So I think that it's important, like Miguelina reiterates, with education, just continuously being exposed to information about the ways in which we're de-racialized in our home countries and then hyper-racialized in the U.S., which creates mm -hmm. then this almost like schizophrenia of sorts, right? Mm -hmm. Which is very inter interesting. But I'm very proud to see more and more of us Latinx people standing up and saying like, I'm not an ally. I am central to this Black Lives Matter movement. Even though we sometimes get some pushback, like, no, you're not, because you ain't Black. But I'm not going to that's for another <laughs> right. conversation. <laughs> Thank you so much. What about you, Julio? Yeah, uh, I want to I wanna say that in Latin America and the Caribbean, we have been the Black Lives Matter, the Black movement has been st strategically working hard for the last 15 years. In fact, in 2011, uh, when the United Nations proclaimed the International Year of People of African Descent, we were able to get together in La Ceiba, Honduras, uh, and we came out with a declaration. Uh, approximately 35 countries participated in this uh, first summit of African descent that we had in La Ceiba, Honduras. The U.S. was part of it, and approximately four or five heads of a state came to, to La Ceiba, Honduras. And at that time, we created a declaration. And in the declaration, we touch about we started touching about the issues of recognition, justice, and development. And in that declaration, we started advocating for the creation of the decades of people of African descent. So we we started working with several stakeholders uh, internationally, particularly uh, governments, the U.S. governments and some European governments. And we started advocating for a decade of African descent. That was the first element of the of the declaration. The other the other element of the declaration has to deal with creating a permanent forum within most of these international organizations, in, including a national governments, to deal with uh, issues that African descent faced throughout the whole hemisphere. And, and uh, so we started requesting an office at the, at the United Nations, particularly the World Bank, the Inter-American Development Bank, 
And many of these agencies, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, we started asking many of the, including national governments, to elevate the status of many of the offices that, that where, where they deal with ethnicity issues or diversity issues to, to do a more targeted work toward Black communities. In the declaration, we also started requesting an, uh, a trust fund, the creation of a trust fund to support projects in Black communities. It is, it is puzzling for many of us to see that today, uh, you know, in most Black communities in Latin America, and many of the Black communities, particularly those that are located far away from the main cities, we don't have reliable access to energy. We have, we have such a weak uh, health infrastructure. The uh, educational curriculum don't necessarily or has, hasn't been able to incorporate the Black uh, history or the Black agenda in their uh, in their in their system, so uh, that was part of the of the of the declaration. Today, uh, the impact that the Black Lives Matter has been having in in the entire region is that we have been many organizations are taking the opportunity to continue moving forward with with these agendas. If you look at what had been happening in in Brazil, what had been happening in Colombia, what had been happening even in Honduras. Uh, where I am from, I have been closely working with uh, stakeholders in all of these countries. In Honduras, out of the approximately 128 members of Congress, 11 of them are Black. Similar number we have in Colombia, approximately 11 members of the Colombian Congress are, are Black, including the Senate. And uh, in Costa Rica, we have a Black Vice President, F.C. F.C. Campbell. And the list goes on and on and on. And we, we talk regularly. We have an ongoing agenda and the Black Lives Matter is, has been re-energizing the way we, 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 we deal with many of these issues. And we are also trying to make sure that uh, first, first we need to uh, acknowledge and sympathize with the African-American community because police brutality is, is an issue that has to end right now. Uh, but at the same time, we are trying to widen the scope of the problem because it's not only about public safety, it's about housing, it's about health, uh, economic opportunities. We are looking at a reten hiring, retention, and promotion programs within each of the existing governments, including multilateral organizations. And in most of the cases, the system is, has been detrimental to many of us. So we are expecting a shift as a result of the Black Lives Matter movement in the way uh, financial institutions have been allocated or are, 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 have been allocating resources in our communities. That means that right now, if you go to any of the traditional multilateral development institutions, right, that which are the, the ones that have been providing most of the financial assistance uh, to build infrastructure in, in our communities, you have to go through at least 45 to 90 people in a in specific transaction just to complete the entire process. So I think that companies like Google, uh, among others, uh, can play an important role in creating innovative, innovative tools that enable us to identify, uh, prepare, uh, negotiate, and monitor projects that are being executed in our communities. 
And that's what we are expecting to get uh, from the uh, current Black Lives Matter movement that I think that we're going to have to continue working on it. It, it, We strongly believe that is the problem is so complex that we 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 need a lot more than a few workshops a few seminars a few activities which is something that traditionally happens when there is a crisis when there is a crisis what many organizations do they prepare a series of programs workshops and seminars to educate their uh, workforce the second thing that they probably do they start giving a little bit more light to their diversity offices mm-hmm. but Two, three years passes, you know, five years, five years pass and, and, and they go sometimes backwards compared to the progress that was being made. So the expectation right now with the Black Lives Matter movement is that organizations take into account these approximately 500 years of resistance, these 500 years of intolerance, discrimination and injustice. Thank you. So the Black Lives Matter movement um, has been a way to almost show resistance against systemic racism and oppression of Black people in the United States. Um, And we are seeing, uh, like you said, uh, Julio, it going globally and expanding to other nations. Um, I'm also interested, uh, Luis, to know how do you think um, other Latin American um, communities have shown resistance? through the arts? Sure, uh, I, I think this is great. I, one, the, this conversation is exposing a lot of the social dynamics that affects, but that also creates blackness simultaneously, which is fascinating. Mm-hmm. And I think that that we have to also recognize that the United States has been the exemplar for other Latin American type of movements, even though we never had within the Latin American context, a civil rights movement, right? Or a Black Lives Matter movement. We have to recognize that a lot of the aesthetics, a lot of what we ought to imitate, right? The idea that the global South imitates the global North to be better. Uh, all of that is is, is, is fed through U.S. Uh, um, platforms, U.S. Uh, uh, platforms, whether it's Hollywood movies, whether it's the print, whether it's um, uh, academic spaces, right? It, 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 blackness has been produced as a as a field of study within the United States. What I like to acknowledge is that the social, uh, the uh, the Black Lives Matter movement has uh, provoked this interest in blackness within the Latin American context. There's a lot more books coming out regarding blackness, the black experience. There's more histories being retold, uh, histories being, uh, and historical facts uh, changing too because of, of, people, uh, of people's willingness to disrupt these uh, westernized or, or centric histories. But I think performance has always played a role. If we think about all the national dances of Latin American countries, all of them have some type of African root. Look at tango, look at uh, samba, look at salsa, look at merengue, look at bomba, look at all of these uh, manifestations where the body plays a main role. The body becomes the agency to reproduce these these histories that have not been part of the the mainstream project, right? These, These performances serve as as a way to resist, but also as a way to remember uh, uh, the past. So, so, so I think that the arts have always been present. 
think about major artists, Celia Cruz, think about uh, Engrupo Nietzsche from Colombia, think mm-hmm. about Joe Arroyo and his infamous La Rebelión, right? I mean, think about all of these small artistic projects that have essentially uh, uh, um, stamped blackness in every Latin American function. I mean, think about Joe Arroyo's La Rebelión. There's no party without that song. Whether people understand the historical context or not, that's another story. The music is powerful, right? So, so we have musical contribution. We don't have that much print because of um, uh, be, because of racism and because of how countries tell their stories, right? Some of these uh, black histories have been uh, erased and or whitewashed, even in the context of Latin America. So we have to to recognize that the orality of passing down these histories, uh, the memory, how memory plays a role in reconstructing the past, um, the stereotypes even attached to blackness, right? Whether you are a good dancer or a, or a good basketball player, whether that is true or not, it has fomented some type, it has cultivated some type of, uh, of, black, uh, of black agency, right? Even though we have to take care of the stereotypes that come with the construct of any cultural manifestation, we have to also recognize that blackening any space is no easy feat. So we have to, um, uh, to constantly go back to the arts to recognize that, yes, there are recordings, there is music, there are instruments, there are ways that people continue to resist. And the performance and the arts will always be um, a repository of all of these memories that are still yet to be performed because of uh, social mobility, discrimination, et cetera, and the case might be, but we have to constantly be uh, aware that cultures are in contact through music, through performance, and we're constantly borrowing from one another. So at the end of the day, blackness is a product of all of us, right? Of our dialogues, of our experiences. um, And we also have to recognize the collectivity of it, but also the individuality of it. Thank you so much for that, Dr. Luis. Uh, Moving on to the development part of our conversation, I'd like to ask you all, um, starting with Brujas of Brooklyn, how do you guys practice activism through your work or your platform? I think that our very existence as Brujas is activism within itself. Brujas meaning witch. Um, Just when you look at patriarchy and racism, a word that was used to demonize women who were powerful and it's still used today. Like my hair like this, my family will be like, ah, it's a bruja, oh, that mm-hmm. witch. And it's usually mm-hmm. not endearing, right? It's not. Mm-hmm. And I think that our reclamation of this identity as women of color, it's resistance in and of itself because it is um, reclaiming a, a, a very important aspect. As I look over at Griselda's altar, a very important aspect of our spirituality that they tried to kill off, right? The European, uh, colonizers try to kill off but it was so strong like I love that saying like they planted us thinking that we were dead but we were actually seeds mm-hmm. right and then we we grow and our generation is reclaiming it Griselda and I we're reclaiming our black and indigenous identity because we also have to talk about right within Caribbean Latinx people this idea that like the the Spanish and the European groups came and completely annihilated the indigenous populations when they didn't it's a very small population in the Dominican Republic specifically but it's still there so in reclaiming this word bruja, this word witch, we're, we're reclaiming an identity, a black indigenous identity that Christianity tried to shun. 
Mm-hmm. And that is an extreme form of resistance. Griselda and I have had to explain ourselves and sometimes not to family members, even our mom, right? Our mom is in her late 70s, a, a dark-skinned Dominican woman who herself has dabbled in the spiritual elements. And she's been like, ¿Y por qué bruja? And why bruja? Because to her, it's like demonic, it's anti-Christ, mm-hmm. it's anti-God. But to us, it's the utmost sign of resistance, Right. And, and activism, because this idea of activism, thankfully, has evolved, giving a lot of props to our ancestors that fought during slave rebellions and during the Civil Rights Act, that this idea of activism was like fighting and yelling and screaming and protesting and rioting. And all of that is very important and has its place. But so does meditating. Right. Mm-hmm. So does resting. So does prayer. Right. Prayer is significantly a form of activism and resistance. And we're embodying that. We're at the height of COVID, at the pandemic, we held a lot of space, right? Just holding space for different companies that were like, hey, can you just teach us how to breathe? Can you teach us how to meditate? Can you teach us about, you know, the immune system? So the, this is the way that we we are activists and activists also during the Black Lives Matter resistance that is, it kind of has a rebirth of sorts, mm-hmm. right? Since it started in 2013, 2014, just uh, understanding that blackness ha- is tied into spirituality in the context mm-hmm. of colonized people. And mm-hmm. I think our, our, our work, so our identity is very much politicized and a form of activism, but then our work, like our workshops, the way we design the mm-hmm. work that we facilitate for people, it's itself a, a form of activism because we contextualize the healing that takes place in our workshops um, within white supremacist um, dehumanization and what it does to the body, what it does to the mind, what it does to the psyche, and how how this like how disconnected a lot of people of African and indigenous descent are to a really um, rooted sense of self because that's a that's a tool of colonialism, um, having us forget and even hate who we are. So what the Brujas of Brooklyn do specifically for women, for people with wombs, is that we create a very beautifully laid out spiritual space so that people could release and purge physically, spiritually, emotionally from the forms of this embodiment that colonialisms have like um, inflicted on us. So that's mm-hmm. to me, that's our specific form of like um, tangible activism and, and I think that even though our work speaks to all people, our intention and our heart is very much rooted in the Native American principle of the nations, of First Nations of this landmass, that when healing takes place among especially colonized peoples, you heal seven generations before and you heal the seven generations that are yet to come. Mm-hmm. And quickly, just I think it's important to speak on your role as a doula. So I'm also a doula. I'm also a doula, which is a birth advocate. And I think that um, it's also important to, um, I think, Julio, you were talking about one of the issues of development in Latin America and the Caribbean is a lack of data. And in the U.S., we have an immense amount of data, but it's not disaggregated when it comes to black people. So this is a very important statistic where this young black woman just died, may she rest in peace, three days ago in a hospital in Brooklyn that black women are four times more likelier to die during or after birth than our white counterparts. And I'm always interested to understand where do black Latinas fit within that statistic? Like, are we dying? Are we dying? Are we almost dying 
from malpractice or a racist and sexist and patriarchal maternal obstetric system in the U.S., but we don't know because Afro-Latinos, Black Latinos, the, the U.S. doesn't disaggregate racial statistics mm -hmm. as a, specifically with regards to who identifies as Black um, in the context of ethnicity. So that's where my work has been shifting, my theoretical work. Um, my practice as a doula exposed me to the obstetrics violence that women of color, especially darker skinned women experience from a mi microscopic neglect or harshness in the tone of a doctor to macroscopic like um, malpractice and higher rates of C-sections among black women. But I'm really interested in like, where do black Latinas women fall? Because then there's something called the Latina paradox where when we look at Latina, Latinas in the context of maternal care, there's this thing where like, we're doing even better than our white counterparts because a lot of Latinas are, are counted as those that are immigrants and immigrant women, ironically, who have not experienced the symbolic violence of racism as it exists in the U.S. do not have weathered or worn bodies the way that first and second generation Latinas do in the U.S. So there's this really interesting statistic that uh, immigrant Latina and an African one, there's there's one that exists. She, her, her statistical experiences in giving birth in a U.S. hospital are very much on par to their white counterparts. But one generation later, their daughters die at the same rates as African-American women. You know, so uh -huh. going back to what Julio and Miguelina were talking about, about policy, then what happens when there are like um, think tanks, which there are growing, like Ancient Song Doula mm -hmm. Services is a social justice organization that advocates highly on creating policy to address racism and maternal care. Where do black Latinas fit in that realm when on one end they're saying black women are dying at high rates and on the other one they're saying that Latinx women are doing just as good as white women? So I think that this is the work that Brujas does, like in that gray area to create a space for black Latina women, black women, Afro-descended women to feel safe and really heal from the womb traumas that we've that we've inherited from our foremothers. Thank you so much. I also want to commend you guys for um, how much you've taught me through your social media presence. Oh, I follow you, you on Instagram um, and how much you're putting out there in terms of energy and and healing for so many women like me that are just following uh, you online. Uh, Julio, would you like to take a stab at this question? Yes, thank you. Uh, you I think that this import, this question is is relevant because you know after we get recognized as a black community throughout the Americas, despite of all our differences, you know, it doesn't matter if you are Raizal. Palenquero, Mulato, Garifuna. I think that we have to be careful. Moving forward with the recognition process, we have to be careful with not uh, being subject to these uh, strategies that have been keep us divided. And, and the, the issue with, with our communities is that, you know, the, limit, the, the resources are so limited that with a little bit of resources, you can divide an entire community. And, and hopefully uh, companies like Google can help us come up with or implement a unified agenda to make sure that the community stay together. After that, we have to overcome the issue of justice. And when, as I said earlier, justice is not only about 
access to public safety infrastructures that enable us to feel safe when we walk on the street. It could be in the United States, it could be in Colombia, Brazil, in Honduras, in all of these countries, there has been systematic practices that, you know, have victimized our communities in so many levels, at so many levels. So the whole issue about development for us, to a certain extent, have signified the allocation of resources in our communities. And it has been also a synonym of capacity building or building capacity within our communities. You can count with the fingers of one hand throughout the entire Western Hemisphere, mostly in Latin America and the Caribbean, the number of Black organizations that have been sustainable for the last, let's say, 15 or 20 years. With one hand, you can go to Colombia, you can go to Mexico, you can go to Honduras. In Honduras, we have Odeco. I think it will be the exception. I'm probably being biased. But you can go to Brazil and you can count with one hand. And, and, and I'm saying this with after an experience of 20 years working in Washington, D.C., uh, working in projects to provide financial assistance to our communities, you can count with the fingers of one hand the organization that have a healthy balance sheet. Or, or, or accounting books that will be able to uh, absorb or capture financial resources above, let's say, $5 million. So the issue of development has a lot to do with building the type of capacity within our communities, the type of capacity within our organizations that will enable us to develop our communities. Uh, from an educational point of view, from a housing point of view, uh, from an access to energy point of view, which is the very basic. So uh, I think that when it comes to, to development, there must be a shift in the paradigms that we have been seeing over the last 30 or 40 years or probably longer than that. Many of the organizations that have been providing the type of financial assistance that our, receive, our communities uh, receive, and they, they, can, they can be go, local government, national governments or international organizations, they have failed to incorporate the type of development with identity that we require. And that happened to a certain extent because of the absence of members of our communities in the decision-making process. Often they will hire you as consultant, often they will have you as a, a staff assistant, but even in many of these multilateral development institutions, listen, there are 150 million Blacks in Latin America and the Caribbean. If you go to many of these multilateral development institutions, you can count with the fingers of one hand the number of Blacks that have been in a supervisory or management position. So we need to start building capacity because if we expect that others are gonna do it for us, we can be waiting for the next 50 years. I think that Google, uh, companies like Google can play an important role in that because through the art that we just described, uh, through the culture that we have in our communities, we have been resistant 
And we are very capable. In fact, we have that capacity to bring the entire region, the Americas, to the next level by combining the arts and culture that we have with the current digital transformation that is happening in the world. We need more, more software engineers. We, we need more coders. We need, we need to take that art into something digital that will enable us to feed ourselves, to feed our family, and to make an impact in the world. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Dr. Lees, how do you practice activism through your work or your platform? Sure. Uh, this is great. One, because, again, it's, it's showcasing how multi-layer activism can be. And, for example, in my work, one of my challenges studying Blackness in Latin America is that most of the histories and most of the central ideas are... Uh, centralized in the Black Atlantic, in the Caribbean, in Brazil, in Cuba, become two dominant countries that are able to narrate this, this Blackness. And there isn't much attention paid to the Black Pacific. And I'm talking about Black Pacific going down from Mexico all the way down to Chile. There isn't much attention uh, um, paid on these uh, localities because there is this idea that, that, that Blackness or that slavery concentrated in one specific area. So for me, activism means uh, allowing these other voices that are not part of the dominant black conversation about whether it's aesthetics, whether it's politics, whether it's presence, recognition, development, whatever the case is, there are some communities that are that have more advantage than others, perhaps because of their closeness to the United States, perhaps because of their respective politics that are involved, right? Uh, and some countries are also isolated from that conversation. Think about Chile, for example, right now, one of the most stable economies of Latin America, yet in the last 10 years, Chile has received about a million immigrants from the Dominican Republic, from Haiti, from Colombia, from Peru even. And these are people that are mainly, those that are coming from the Dominican Republic, Colombia, uh, and Haiti are black. And Chile is having a very difficult time accepting this blackness that was never part of their nation state, right? I mean, Chile even has issues with their native populations with the, uh, uh, and recognizing them into, into national policy. Um, so, so for me, it's about connecting all of these oppressions that are still happening. Otherwise, we're going to get into this collection of uh, oppression battles. My oppression is worse than yours, so therefore I should have the, the uh, spotlight, right? It shouldn't be that. It should be about connecting the similarities and the themes that these populations are confronting on, on, on a daily basis. Uh, so for me, is is performing activism through linking all of these voices that are talking, but that unfortunately some do not have a platform to be heard. And that's, that's, that's my insistence on trying to uh, continue to connect and forge networks um, that can support the mobility of people, right? The uneducated will never move out of their space unless they have the opportunity to be projected, to be educated, activated, and then organized. Uh, so, so, so for me, activism is, yes, we should continue to pay attention to how not necessarily how the body moves, but what makes these bodies move. There's something that are, that, that are making these people 
confront and combat the inequalities that they've been resisting for the last 400, 500 years. So we have to pay attention to how the body performs, but also how the how these bodies can be in sync at the same time. That's how I look at my activism. Thank wow. you. I just want to say that this has been one of the most dynamic and powerful uh, panels that I've ever been um, privileged to be part of. Uh, I do want, in closing, to end with one final question to all of you. And that is, what is one message that you want your audience or this audience to walk away with uh, from this conversation? Just one thing you want them to walk away with, uh, starting with Brujas. Um, that one message that I would love to leave um, those that are tuned in is to remember that um, all this conversation is extremely important mm -hmm. and that the Brujas are committed to um, social justice, specifically anti-racism um, for until it's here, until we're here. Um, but we, 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 we like to remember that we are spiritual beings having a human experience. Mm -hmm. And not, this is definitely not an all lives matter conversation. Absolutely not. I'm speaking specifically to my black brothers and sisters around the globe. If you identify as such, then this is for you. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. And when we remember that all these constraints and all these identities and all these questions of who I am, what box should I check, where do I belong, they become important, but they don't paralyze you as mm -hmm. much as they would have if you really believe and allow yourself to believe that all you are is an identity. We are so much more than that. But in that, I proudly, as a spiritual being, having a human experience, wear my identity as a Black Latina woman in a very proud way. And I think my uh, message, the takeaway I'd love people to go home with is love must be central in these conversations. Mm -hmm. And I always joke, not the cheesy, like, kumbaya, we're just going <laughs> to bypass all of this. You know, resist and rebel and demand, but always keeping love central because the conversation around love comes up in these very heated topics and controversial topics. And automatically people think that we're kind of like bulldozing through the topic or we're asking people to just come together besides everything when love is revolutionary, right? Mm -hmm. Love is one of the most revolutionary acts because it's asking you to love yourself so much that you demand, mm -hmm. right, certain rights. If not a seat at the table, you, you create your own table, right? But you do it in a way where grace is central, and I don't want anyone to, to think that because you are loud and you're um, assertive that you're lacking in love because um, Pedagogy of the mm -hmm. Oppressed, that's a book. I should have bought stock in it because I mentioned it so much. <laughs> Pedagogy of the, the Oppressed where he teaches that one of the most loving things you can do is show violence, right? And that's, take this carefully, right? It's mm -hmm. not violence in terms of like, a senseless, unjustified violence, sometimes it's just asserting your boundaries. It's saying no firmly, right, but with a lot of love. So my message is love is multifaceted and belongs central to this conversation about Blackness and identity. Thank you so much. Julio? Yeah. Uh, first of all, I would like to thank you, uh, Julissa, and the entire Google team for making this conversation possible. And uh, the rest of the 
panelists that have joined us. You guys have done a terrific job. I have learned a lot from each of you. I think that if my message will be around the decades of African descent, I think that, first of all, if you live in the United States, make sure that you answer the census form. And if you are a Black Latino or Black Latina, or even a Latina that have a remote possibility of being Black because of the one-drop rule, answer the form. And the same message will be to all of the members of the Black communities that live throughout the Americas that have the same the same, the census, uh, the decennial census happening right now. So if you are a member of a black community, no matter where you are in the Americas, if you are a member of these approximately 200 million blacks that live in the region, let's focus on creating capacity within our communities. Government has not been there for us and they won't probably be there based on historical data. Uh, we can talk and claim and do whatever we want. If we don't build our capacity with our, within our communities, we won't be able to overcome many of the challenges of social justice, uh, police brutality, access to economic opportunities, um, uh, creating health infrastructure in our communities the way we want to. So the other thing that I strongly believe that is important to, to keep into account is that corporations or organizations that are really serious about having an impact in our communities, they have to create permanent offices that mainstream the black agenda within their organizations. We are not talking about creating a diversity office with a diversity officer that has six black six hats on them. They, they run the women issues, they run the indigenous people issues, they run the the black issues and the list goes on and on and on and on and on and on because we all know how complicated this can be. If you are serious about dealing with the black agenda, create or mainstream the black agenda across all the departments of your agency. And if you are even more serious, allocate resources, but targeted resources in our communities. We need to collect more data that enable us to promote the sustainable development with identity that we have been asking for. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Julio. Dr. Luis? Yes, thank you for that question. And thank you to, to, my, to my panelists for also joining me in this great conversation. You know, when I think about our capacity and how we are people, um, you know, I, 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 we have... Fuerza, fe, voluntad, right? Uh, power, faith, and willingness to resist. We've been resisting for so long that this is something that we have it innate in us, for some of us at least. Um, I would recommend people to get in touch with their roots, even though they, they, they won't be able to go back to those initial roots, right? Because we've been in contact with so many other cultures and people throughout time. But this idea of touching the roots, this idea of going back to the beginning, to, to, to the acknowledgement of these histories that were not part of, of a person's education, of a person's well-being, of a person's upbringing, I think it's time for us to connect with that, to connect with that past, to connect with that present. Um, I often think about the memories that shape who we are, 
right? We are a product of those memories, of those stories that were told to us from our grandparents to our parents, especially those of us who come from immigrant families, those of us who are immigrants, right? A lot of what feeds our motives, our resistance are the histories from the past, right? How they made it, how they made it so that we can have a better future. It's the same exact thing here. It's the same exact logic. How can we confront the future when we don't even know most of our past? Mm-hmm. And, 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 and that's a confession that we have to do, right? We have to acknowledge that uh, we may be wrong in the wrong, that we may not know everything, but that we have an opportunity to relearn and undo some of these biases and prejudice behaviors and thoughts that continue to, to limit our ability of, 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 of creating community and uh, organic conversations. So for me, it's go back to the roots, go back to those stories, um, use that to resist and use those memories to inform your future. So thank you so much. Thank you, thank you all so much. That concludes our panel for today. I'm Melanie Parker. Thank you for joining us for the search for racial equity. Let us march on till victory is won.